It's time for WAKR's This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. This Week in Tech is brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton, your home for copiers, printers, and supplies. This week we're looking at how artificial intelligence and other advanced technology is being used to help farmers continue to produce all the food we need despite climate change-related conditions like increased rainfall and shorter growing seasons. We'll also look at other types of new technology like drones, cameras, and even solar panels that farmers can use to help them produce crops in a more efficient, sustainable, and profitable way. So, we talked to Scott Shearer, who is professor and chair of the Department of Food, Agricultural, and Biological Engineering at The Ohio State University in Columbus. Start off with we have machinery companies bringing AI-driven products to the marketplace. John Deere has introduced what they call see and spray. See and spray is a camera and processor combination. The camera obviously is generating images that are analyzed using artificial intelligence to make a decision as to a practice that might be employed. This camera processor combination is a multiples of those are placed across the spray boom. And as the sprayer goes through the field, it recognizes a weed and discriminates it from the crop canopy, could be corn, could be soybeans, turns on a single spray nozzle then to spray that weed. Right now, or up to this point in time, most farmers were doing broadcast application. In other words, they apply an herbicide to the entire field. Now what we're able to do is selectively apply that herbicide only to those affected areas in the field where you need to control weeds. And, and so what has happened and what we're noticing is there's a significant reduction in herbicide application. John Deere is reporting 70% reduction, up to 80%. I've seen some other companies reporting as much as 90% reduction. That is using herbicides, obviously, to control weeds, but only applying to those affected areas of the field and using artificial intelligence to analyze the images and make spray, no spray decisions. The other area that's becoming pretty interesting is, is using artificial intelligence for what we call collision avoidance. So there have been a lot of companies that have been talking about autonomous tractors, but this year, 2023, we actually have some autonomous tractor packages in the marketplace. And so one of the growing concerns is if you have that automated equipment in the field, how does it recognize when it needs to stop to avoid a collision? Could be a collision with another vehicle. It could be a collision with a human. And so multiple companies are beginning to put cameras on the tops of the tractor cabs. And then through artificial intelligence, using that intelligence to recognize situations. It could be a tractor that's uh, doing tillage in a field and it recognizes that a, a tree has fallen at the edge of the field. So it stops instead of running over the, the down tree. It could be a billboard that's blown down, another good example. And so as we move towards automation, as we move towards removing the human from the tractor cab, if you will, the question is, how do we replace the function of that human? Artificial intelligence is part of what's going to drive that process in terms of automation. Those are the two most immediate uses, in my estimation, of artificial intelligence in agriculture. Let's not forget, though, that we begin looking at cropping enterprises as a whole we might start making different decisions about what types of crops to plant. It could be a hybrid or a variety of a certain crop, corn or soybeans. 
it might be a crop mix. We, we may uh, go into a situation where we have other crops in that rotation and we'll time the markets in some respects. Artificial intelligence may be used to help farmers do a better job of marketing the grain as well. I think that's a little bit down the road. I think there's a lot of people playing kind of in that space and time will tell what happens. This is no different than what's going on in the stock market in, in my estimation. We'll see some of that creep into uh, how uh, farmers determine their crop mix, determine uh, what the potential yields might be, and then market that agricultural produce at the end of the growth cycle. Huh, that sounds interesting. One of the other topics that I'd heard about, I covered a, a recent event where farmers from around the state were talking about agrivoltaics, so having solar arrays in fields, and it would allow them to shelter some crops to keep them from getting too much sun. But they also talked about instead of like the bigger tractors, that if you're going to have these solar arrays and whatnot throughout the fields, that maybe you would be using some of the smaller tractors in that case. Two things that I think that are noteworthy. Right now, when we look at most of the solar farms being developed in the state of Ohio, and there's a number of them either under construction or going through the permitting process, many of those are focused on looking at managing the ground cover as kind of being a maintenance issue. And what I'm saying is most of these solar farms are not necessarily being developed for dual use. Okay. They're they're being developed to generate electricity, and that's it. And when you begin looking at managing vegetation under these solar arrays, it really comes down to about the, the only practical way to do it is to mow three to four times a year. And, and so the question is, is how do you mow? The interesting thing is when these solar farms are constructed, a lot of the wiring is above ground. And so when we begin thinking about operating equipment between rows of solar panels, the problem is... There are wires that will cross those alleyways between piers, if you will, supporting the, the solar panels, which means if you're mowing, you can only mow so far, then you got to turn around with a mower and go back. So they're using a lot of ZTR mowers and things of that nature. When we begin thinking about agrivoltaics, we begin thinking about actively growing crops underneath the solar panels. Right now, the spacing is generally between the piers supporting the solar panels is generally something on the order of 22 to 23 feet. When you look at the solar panel when it's horizontal, it could be ranged from anywhere from seven to nine feet, which means there's a significant amount of sunlight actually making it to the ground. There's also a lot of diffuse light that makes it to the ground as well. Various experiences growing crops underneath these solar panels. Some crops you'll actually see a reduction in yield, which is to be expected, less sunlight. Some crop, their shaded will actually increase in yield. And I use uh, cool season grasses in, as, as an example or hay. So one of the things that's starting to come to light is this dual use thing. In other words, yes, we're going to produce electricity, but then can we turn around and produce agricultural commodities? One of the thoughts is we graze animals underneath these solar panels, and that's certainly an option. There are some animals that are well-suited for grazing under solar panels, others that are a little bit more problematic. And I'm going on things that have been shared with me by some of the people interested in agrivoltaics. Sheep work very well grazing under solar panels. Goats, on the other hand, tend to jump up on the solar panels, okay? And so you have to kind of look at the species and think about cows, uh, beef cattle are generally a little bit too tall for the solar panels. The leading edge of the solar panel, depending upon the angle and the orientation, will be as close as to about 36 inches off the ground. And obviously, I don't know too many of our beef cattle that are that short. So on the crop side, I think we're just moving down the road of understanding. There's been a lot of research done on specialty crops. 
And when I talk about specialty crops, it could be uh, vegetables. The problem with that is right now we're transitioning a lot of what we call our prime farm ground into solar farms, but that's traditionally been in things such as corn and soybeans. And so the question becomes, are there crops that make sense that we can uh, produce and utilize? Hay would be one of those. We can always feed hay to animals. And so one of the projects we're involved in with Savion, which is one of the solar farm developers here in the state of Ohio, is actually looking at growing cool season grasses and then operating small equipment under the solar panels to cut and bale those cool season grasses as hay. We are also optimistic we can plant a lot of other grain crops such as wheat and soybeans because they're shorter. We also have some short stature corns coming to the market. And so very much this agrivoltaic area is, I'm going to say it's emerging. This dual use or the second use will not only produce electricity, will produce food. And, and I think that really goes towards this, I'm going to say the public outcry at this point in time against solar farms, a lot of it has been the loss of prime farmland. And I get that and I get the passion coming from that camp in terms of the state. But if we are able to move towards this dual use, it makes a lot of sense um, that maybe our farmers are not only producing energy that's going to drive our economies, they're also producing the food to feed the citizens at the same time. A lot of research to be done yet. I don't want to pretend that we have all the solutions to the problem. But one of those is going to be smaller equipment. And what we're looking at is automated smaller equipment. The, the project we're working on, Kubota, is one of the companies we partnered with. We're also using a product from Sabanto, which is an automation package that drops onto a Kubota tractor. Kubota makes hay tools in addition to small equipment. And we're going to see if we can automate that tractor between those rolls of solar panels. Again, Pretty narrow working widths. We're talking effective uh, farming widths of maybe 17 to 20 feet in width. We have to bury the wire underground so we can go through and, and operate continuously between those rolls of solar panels and, and turn at the ends. It's a bit of a different design. It's a bit of a different way of looking at solar farms. The other thing I'll remind you is we take um, about two-thirds of the cost of maintenance for solar farms off the table. In other words, if we're not having to mow three or four times a year in terms of just managing the vegetation under the solar panels, and then all of a sudden we're creating a product that can be marketed such as baled hay, that's a net positive for the, the solar farm operators. I, I think it's also a net positive for the state of Ohio when we look at that dual use. Yes, we've lost some farm ground. There's no question about that. But we tried to minimize those losses through this agrivoltaic approach or this dual use. And it sounds like a pretty creative use as well. Maybe these are farmers who had only been doing corn and soybeans, and now they can expand you know, their repertoire, so to speak, and plant some other crops and have a new revenue stream. I, I know there's a lot of passion on both sides of the issue with solar farms. And my role as a researcher at Ohio State University is not to get involved in that conversation. Our, our thought has always been, let's let that play out. Let's let the people living in those areas decide um, how that's going to move forward. The statement that I would make is, if we are going to have solar farms, let's think about how we can uh, get greater bang for the buck, so to speak, in terms of agrivoltaics and some of these dual-use considerations. Okay, that sounds great. So is there anything else tech-wise on the horizon for agriculture that you find real exciting that you might want to mention? Well, there's two things. You know, I, I mentioned this trend towards larger equipment. All that is predicated on human operators. As we see these automation packages come to the marketplace, 
John Deere has announced a fully autonomous 8R tractor. Sabanto has a drop-on automation package that goes on a couple different makes and models of tractors. But as we see these things introduced, one of my assertions is we might see the equipment get smaller. In other words, yes, we'll need more tractors, but instead of buying a, a five or 600 horse tractor, maybe we buy three 110 or 120 horse tractors. And my point is, as we automate, we can operate this equipment 24-7. Right now, most of the, our utilization of the existing equipment is tied to how long we have an operator in the cab. You know, I'm going to say if, it, if it's the same operator every day, they're probably good for about 14 or 15 hours. But as you might guess, you need a little bit of downtime and a little bit of sleep between, between days. And so we could get better asset utilization by going to this autonomous equipment and removing the operator from uh, the tractor cab. So that's one thing. And I think if that happens, we'll see the equipment get a lot smaller than what we have. And and, and by the way, that's going to help, in my estimation, soil health, because we have a lot of concerns with the size of equipment today and soil compaction. We're reducing the void space within the soil that's necessary for air and water. And that's essential in, in terms of the biology of the soil. If we don't have void space for air and water, uh, we have if we have compacted soils. There's also resistance to root growth and, and crop development, access to nutrients, uh, water, and a number of other things. The other thing was drones. I'm going to say up until about three years ago, drones were used ex um, exclusively for collecting remote sensed imagery and trying to do a better job of managing crops. And that's certainly the role for them today. More recently, and especially in the state of Ohio, we've seen companies, startup companies, begin spraying with drones. And most specifically, they're using drones to spray fungicides during the summer. We've had several of these companies that are in business now across the state of Ohio, in part because the drone, the physical size of the drones that are available to these companies have gotten much larger. We now have some drones that some of these companies have been flying that they're approaching about 380, 390 pounds in terms of overall weight or gross vehicle weight when they're loaded with uh, spray materials. We go back three years, about two gallons uh, spray mixture tanks or two gallon tanks. We've seen a doubling of that every year. This year, we had drones that were flying that were 18 gallons of spray mixture capacity. So the drone would go up, spray several acres, and 18 gallons would spray about nine acres. The drone would land. You'd refill it with um, spray material, in this case, the fungicide and water. And you put a new battery on it, and you send it back out. And a lot of those companies were charging something around uh, $12 to $14 an acre for that uh, fungicide application. Some of those companies uh, were spraying anywhere from uh, 20 uh, acres per hour up to about uh, 35 or 40 acres per hour. And so it became a very positive cash flow business. I guess going back in time, I never imagined that we'd be using drones to deliver inputs to agricultural production um, and, and spray fields with it. But we know that on the regulatory side, there are some concerns. A number of these companies are meeting all the obligations of the FAA as well as the Ohio Department of Agriculture. But it's an evolution that we see ongoing. A lot of that spray application would have been done with a ground-based machine, a high-clearance sprayer with big booms or wide booms, 120-foot booms. We're seeing drones take over a portion of that that retail space, if you will, in terms of services that are provided to farmers. So those are the other two things that I think are reshaping agriculture as we know it in the state of Ohio. 
That was Scott Shearer, who is professor and chair of the Department of Food, Agricultural, and Biological Engineering at The Ohio State University in Columbus. And I'm Jean Destro. Thanks for listening. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. This has been This Week in Tech with Gene Destro on WAKR, brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton.